a Podcast One production. Winning. For any competitive person, it is the greatest, most wonderful feeling of all. And politics, being sport without the ball or clock, is as damn well competitive as anything else. And when winning happens in politics, winners are more than just grinners. They have power. I'm Adam Peacock, and on Peacock Politics, I want to delve into how the 2019 election was won, what the Liberal Party did right, what the Labor Party did wrong, and how so many people got the prediction way off. My guest is the Honourable Christopher Pine, who served as a Liberal Party member in the House of Representatives for 26 years. He's been there for triumph of electoral victory and the hollowness of defeat, so he's more than qualified to comment on this particular event. Although he retired before the election, he had an upfront view into how the campaign was managed, massaged and cajoled into something great for the coalition. Christopher, thank you for your time. Now, I'm not a religious type, so I won't touch on the topic of miracles, but along those lines, how on earth did you guys pull that out of your ass? <laughs> well, I can tell you, Adam, that in fact, when Malcolm was deposed in August last year, we actually were in front in the 40 marginal seats that we routinely polled. So we we were actually thinking back then that we would win. And of course, it was 49.51 against us in the published opinion polls. Then, of course, we went into a deep decline uh, after we changed leadership and uh, dropped, plummeted, you should say, in the polls. But from about December last year, uh, Scott Morrison started to uh, peg back Labor's lead in the marginals. Uh, when we called the election, uh, we th- believed that we had a better than even chance of getting across the line. And the Thursday before election day, uh, I sent around a text to my 30 or 40 closest friends saying, I predict a minority coalition government. And we did uh, about four better than I expected. So we'll end up with about 77, maybe 78. So it wasn't such a shock except for the commentariat in Canberra, in the Canberra bubble, and for all those people who were desperate for us to lose. But it wasn't a shock to people who, um, who had been following it closely for a long time. Give us an idea of the balance of how something like this manifests, such as from your side, the the coalition side, the planning and the strategy that goes in behind the scenes that isn't visible a hell of a lot during the campaign while it's running, and the flip side, the luck you get in terms of an opposition doing something that you want them to do. Well, interesting question, because there was there's a lot of luck involved in winning. Napoleon said, give me lucky generals, <laughs> because uh, there were a couple of things that really fell our way when I thought to myself, yeah, we might actually get there. The first of those was Labor's retiree tax. Now, whether it's a retiree tax or not, and Labor says it isn't, you know, but how do you explain franking credits and how they work? But you can easily explain a retiree tax. When Labor announced that, and when Chris Bowen said, if you don't like it, don't vote for us, I thought, well, there is an enormous segment of the voting public, millions of voters who are now energised, and they have a reason to campaign against the Labor Party. And older people are very connected. Um, They're on the internet. They think about their money a lot because they can't go out and get another job like you and I can, Adam. And so they are very sensitive when someone says they're going to attack their hip pocket. And better than that, from a political point of view, they talk to everybody. So they would have told all of their children and grandchildren, well, we're going to lose money. 
That means less restaurant meals, less holidays, cheaper Christmas presents, our World Vision child in Uganda or Rwanda or charity here in Australia is going to miss out this year, and they would have talked a lot. So when that happened, I thought to myself, "Hmm, that's interesting, that's energised a lot of people against Labor. And uh, secondly, it was the grumpiness of Bill Shorten in the first week of the election campaign when Jonathan Lee from the Network 10 pursued him about the cost of his 45% emissions reduction target. And I thought, well, gosh, if Bill is going to be grumpy all through the election like this, when Scott is bouncing around like a jumping bean having the time of his life, then it portrays to the public that Bill thinks, why do I have to have this pesky election when I'm supposed to be the Prime Minister already, versus Scott, who's hungry to win. And the Australian public love an underdog, and they don't like it, it being assumed how they're going to vote. What about from the, the coalition side in terms of the planning? I understand that the the campaign headquarters was set up in Brisbane, and then obviously things went very well for one side in Queensland and horribly for another side in Queensland. It just so happened that the, the team that had their HQ up in Brisbane did very well. So what happens in a nerve centre like that during a campaign? Well, everyone who's working in Parliament House effectively uh, uh, rushes the exits uh, when the election is called or the weekend before the election's called to go and people the headquarters. Of course, they can't work for uh, the people they were working for before, but they can go and um, and help campaign uh, for the re-election of their government uh, or in the opposition's case, the election of the opposition. So they all go to their campaign headquarters and they uh, focus on their specific job. And everyone will have a very specific job. It's like a well-oiled machine. And you do the same job over and over again. So somebody will be responsible for seats in South Australia. And when you boil that down, that really means Boothby, because the other seats were not marginal. And their only job will be to work with Andrew Hurst, the pollsters, the message makers to say this is what's working or not working in, say, Boothby. And then there'll be another person in the headquarters whose only job is health policy. So if you think you have a really good announcement that you want to make during the election campaign in your electorate, you'll deal with one person and that one person will go directly to Andrew Hurst. So it's a very, very flat management structure and it means that you can you can react and be agile Uh, in a way that we didn't used to be in old-style campaigns, and you have to be able to do that because social media means the campaign is moving faster than it's ever moved before, and Labor replicates that. Now, where it is geographically is not that important, Adam, but we chose Brisbane because there's a lot of marginal seats in Queensland, and we felt that there was opportunities there like Longman and Herbert, which both turned out to be the case, and seats to protect like Capricornia, and Ford, and seats like that, and that's as it turned out. And, um, you know, honestly, I think one of the stories about this election in the future when it's written about will be that Labor really believed they'd won it, and it was just waiting for the five weeks to be over before they lifted the trophy. It reminded me of the 2017 AFL Grand Final when the Crows turned up already believing that they'd won the, the final and, of course, had their hand on the trophy. It was snatched out of their hands by Richmond. It reminded me very much of that feeling that one side is really hungry and the other side's basically thinking, gosh, when's this going to be over, you know? Aren't Mm. we supposed to be the government now? So Andrew Hurst was the leader of the the, the campaign for the coalition? Andrew Hurst is our our federal campaign director and uh, secretary of the Liberal Party. 
So you mentioned there about more agile than campaigns of old. What did you mean by that? How do you be agile in a campaign? Well, in the old campaigns, when I first got elected, a lot of the campaign messages uh, and material were already set in stone well before the election was called. So you'd have your um, uh, first week message, your postal vote application with a letter already written weeks before the election. You would focus on getting uh, mail into the letterbox, winning the letterbox war, uh, getting your core flutes up. A lot of the messages were already decided, a lot of the work that had already been done by the advertising agencies. In an election these days, it changes a lot, depending on what's happening. So when we saw that Bill was struggling to explain how much his 45% emissions reduction target would impact on the economy, when it became obvious that he didn't know the detail of some of the policies around their tax agenda... Uh, their $387 billion of new taxes, uh, the superannuation impact on self-managed funds by some of the changes they were proposing around superannuation. We shifted some of our campaign to Bill doesn't know what his policies are. If he doesn't know what they are, you shouldn't vote for them. If you don't, if you, if he can't explain them and you don't understand them, don't vote for them because if you did, you wouldn't vote for them in the first place. And so a lot of our material became about that. And that wouldn't have happened before the election because it only became apparent during the election that Bill couldn't explain his policies. And in social media, we would try and get a lot of those messages out through social media and by then promoting those messages so that young people and older people, quite frankly, would see them on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or UFace or whatever they were using. <laughs> UFace. <laughs> Twittergram. <laughs> That's my face, my favourite one. So, FaceTube or something. <laughs> what are some of the other, any other unseen factors that you try to keep within during the campaign because you don't want to let your strategy out too much because then yes. the other mob know, but now you, you, you're kind of okay to, to get out there and, and say, yeah, this is how we did it. Well, that's an interesting question because one of the things that was apparent was that the entire commentariat believed that we couldn't possibly win. And so one of the things that we needed to do was say to the Australian public, this is closer than you think that the objects in the rear view mirror are closer than you might they might realise. And because we needed people not to get on the Labor bandwagon and think, well, I'm going to vote for the winner. So there was a lot of effort put into over the five weeks of the campaign convincing people that we had a chance of winning and that this was an election that was worth, you know, considering rather than just getting on the Labor bandwagon. And subliminally, the Australian voter loves an underdog, but as the election gets closer, they think, well, we might as well give the Labor Party, in this case, a big majority so it's easy for them to govern and we can get on with it. So one of the things we had to subliminally work on was convincing people that actually we had a real chance of winning and therefore you shouldn't put your pool cue in the rack and assume Labor's going to get up. So there was a lot of messaging around um, this being a real contest the polls getting closer, the published polls, uh, internal polling showing us having a real chance, opportunities in places like Queensland, New South Wales, Tasmania, and the application of the leader, in this case, Scott Morrison, showing that he was going to fight for every vote right through to six o'clock on the Saturday. Bill's drinking beer and with his journalistic friends on the Saturday, a la Bob Hawke. Scott's crisscrossing 
Tasmania and New South Wales fighting for every vote to give the public the impression that there's a real chance in this campaign, so don't assume the Liberal Party's out of the fight because we're not. And, of course, that, that was what was conveyed. And, you know, by election day, people were thinking this is a real contest. Interested in the topic of internal polling as well. Obviously, the public polls got it got it wrong, not horribly wrong, because it was like well, on election day, I think it was 51-49, which is, to me, it's pretty close race. But internally, do you target the certain seats that you know are going to be critical almost by stealth in terms of polling and understanding exactly what's going on there? Because... I mean, after talking to Anthony Green and, and understanding his methods as well as how he reads an election, it's all just one big maths equation when it comes down to it because it's votes and numbers. So did you target those specific areas that you thought were vulnerable maybe in the opposition or maybe vulnerable in your own right and go hard at them and look after them or was it a more general outlook on the whole of Australia? Well, anyone who can uh, focus and understand Anthony Green's methods should win a Nobel Prize for science. So <laughs> I might put you up for that. You'll, you'll invite me to the um, the ceremony, I hope, in <laughs> Stockholm. Yeah, sure. Uh, um, is it Oslo or Stockholm? I think it uh, might it, be Oslo. Actually. Somewhere cold and north, yeah. Yeah, up there. It's, either, it's Norway, I think. Near reindeer somewhere, yep. Um, in any event, uh, will you focus on the seats that you think will change hands uh, or your own seats that you don't want to change hands. So you'd certainly in a, it, don't focus on a seat like Maranoa in Queensland unless there's an independent challenge. Uh, and, of course, that meant that in New South Wales we were focusing on Farrah, uh, which Susan Lee won comfortably in the end because there was a serious independent challenge. But, you know, months out from the election, you you are polling... Uh, qualitatively and quantitatively, but the qualitative polling is much more useful. Uh, and asking people their thoughts about the candidates and the leaders and the policies to work out which seats you don't need to uh, throw everything at and which seats you do. And what that meant was that we were told uh, from the polling and from our own anecdotal activities that there was a, a real chance in seats like Bass, Braddon and Lyons in Tasmania, and we should focus on those. But there probably wasn't going to be any change in uh, Western Australia and South Australia. So while, of course, we would campaign and campaign hard, uh, if we wanted to win, because remember, after the redistribution, we lost two seats and Labor gained two seats, so we were both behind the eight ball. We, couldn't, we both had to win seats to win, that we would need to win in places like Tasmania, Maybe in Herbert, we focused on seats like Solomon and Lingiari in the Northern Territory, which we didn't end up winning, but we did well in, but we didn't win. And we had to protect seats like Boothby and in Western Australia, Swan and Stirling, where there was a retiring member and Pierce, which the redistribution had made very marginal. And of course, Dixon with Peter Dutton in uh, Brisbane. So you definitely focused your attention and where you might spend, you know, say you spent $100,000 in a a safer seat, you might spend $500,000 in a seat that you were targeting or even more. How do you actually do it though, the polling, and what constitutes how you spend it as well? Well, you have quantitative polling where you'll sit, you have a phone around um, of uh, of the voters and um, try and work out, you know, the um, percentages 
that your party is attracting and that the leader is approved or not approved. That's a lot of and, phone calls. Yeah, well, they don't do them. Well, they do about sort of 200 to 500 would be a large, small to large poll yep. of a seat. And in a seat like mine of Sturt, there's like 130,000 voters. So it's a small sample. Uh, that gives you a bit of an idea. But then the more useful thing is the qualitative polling. And that is where you get a group of people uh, who have identified themselves as undecided voters and you sit down with them in a room and you ask them questions about retiree tax, negative gearing, Bill Shorten, Scott Morrison, the teams, the party brand, and you just listen to what they have to say and you pick up from them what's working, what's not working, things that should be dropped, uh, things that should be promoted and uh, what they take for granted. Now, a good example would be in a qualitative group like that, if you talk to them about national security, their resting position would be coalition's probably going to spend more money on defence, which is true, because every time Labor's in power, they cut defence, and every time we're in power, we increase spending on defence. Like, in the last six years, it's been a $200 billion build-up of our military capability. Under Labor, it was a $17.89 billion cut in real spending over six years. So, you think to yourself, well, that's good, but unfortunately, in the quality of polling, the voter has banked that. So that's not going to be a vote changer. The coalition rushes out and says, we're going to spend more money on defence. The public thinks, well you, well, you always do, so how is that going to change my vote? So uh, the quality of polling tells you the things you need to focus on as opposed to the things that unfortunately they've been banking. So in defence, they banked uh, that we'd be better. So we didn't talk a lot in the election campaign about national security. But there was a real fight over tax versus spending. Mm. You know, Bill went out hard, and, you know, credit to him, he decided he was going to have a big taxing, big spending policy, and he thought that would get people across the line. He went out hard and said, we're going to, sure, we're going to tax people a lot more, but we're going to spend a lot more on health and education and the environment and whatever. And we said... Well, we think we can do the spending that's needed on infrastructure and health and education without having to increase taxes, and you make the decision. It's like a debate. And the qualitative polling tells you whether that is impacting or whether it's not impacting. And then it throws up unusual things, Adam, like it would have thrown up that Jenny Morrison was a real asset. And nine months ago, when Scott became the Prime Minister and Jenny was... Uh, as well known as my wife, um, that wouldn't have been apparent to us. Then over time, it became quite clear that the Australian public really liked Jenny Morrison. So she became a rather a kind of secret weapon in many respects that uh, we probably hadn't anticipated in August 2018. And I've got another theory as well that might have come out of these uh, group chats that you had with undecided voters, that the coalition decided that saying Bill Shorten a lot was a positive thing for your side. True yep. or not true? Well, Bill Shorten was definitely not a positive for the Labor Party. And the polling in my own seat of Sturt showed that he was a major negative. Why? Um, people don't trust Bill Shorten, uh, for better or worse. That's you know, harsh. It is harsh. It's unfair, isn't it? I mean, it, or it might be unfair. I mean, that was the perception, though. Now, I've known Bill Shorten now for a long time, and I get along with him perfectly well. But the problem with politics, and like advertising, like products, you know, they, they have a shelf life, and 
people take a set against them or not against them, you know? Mm. And for Bill, being opposition leader for six years was probably not an advantage. Now, Labor said it's a big advantage because we're very stable. But Alice Workman said on Quanda the other night, there's never been a leader of the opposition for six years who's ever got elected as prime minister. And my own experience tells me that most people who become prime minister are opposition leader for a short period of time, like a year, 18 months, six months, because unfortunately the job of opposition leader is to be relentlessly negative. <laughs> and the Australian public get a bit sick of that. And so, yes, Labor said this is, this is a sign of our stability. The Australian public said it might be, but we don't like Bill. And every contest has a presidential element in Australia these days and has for two or three decades, really, since Bob Hawke versus Malcolm Fraser. So that didn't help Bill, no doubt about it. Didn't help Labor, no doubt about it. You were there in 1993 when the Coalition lost the unlosable election after John Hewson decided to try and introduce the GST and it didn't go down too well. But in 1996, it all turned around and John Howard swept to power for the Coalition and the Labor Party lost control of government. How did it all turn around then? And are there lessons to be learned for both major parties of politics in Australia now in terms of what will happen in three years' time from from right here? Of course, Adam, I was a mere slip of a lad in 1993. (laughs) Uh, Only 25, a callow youth. Uh, You should see my pictures from my maiden speech. It's quite funny. Um, The thing we did in 93 to 96, we did a very honest assessment of what had gone wrong. We'd been in opposition since 1983. Uh, We were uber confident of winning in 93, 10 years later. Uh, We were quite shocked that the public didn't just keep turning the government over like they, that was really the pattern and they stopped that pattern. So Labor had a 13 year period in government. Between 93 and 96, we had a very honest assessment of where we'd gone wrong. One of the things that was really obvious was that we'd been a disunited rabble for most of that time in opposition, fighting between Peacock and Howard, and we had to work out that for the Liberal Party to be successful, both wings of the party, Liberal and Conservative, need to be flying in tandem for that particular bird to to be successful, to fly and to land. And we did that. There are some danger signs for Labor right now in the blaming of everyone else for the election loss. Uh, Bill Shorten was blaming business uh, leviathans and media moguls. Uh, No, (laughs) Labor lost because they had a big taxing agenda, which the Australian public didn't want. And they had a leader that the Australian public didn't trust. And that's why they lost. And if they want to spend the next three years blaming everybody else and embracing Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders, well, good luck to them, but they will not win again in three years' time. So there are danger signs already that Labor isn't owning up to their defeat. And even the choosing of the leadership group by the Labor Party, where uh, they apparently had to have, regardless of merit, two women and two men I thought, well, that's great. It's two men and two women. Good luck to them. But, you know, everything should be based on merit. And there was no really good reason for Don Farrell to be axed for Christina Keneally 
and they're still sending the message that it's all about the picture rather than the substance. What happens now in terms of the functionality of politics in the next few months and now that everyone has got their eyes back on Canberra and what they hope to achieve right there? I mean, has, has Scott Morrison unpacked the boxes that he apparently packed at Kirribilli because he thought he was out of there? Well, it's probably sensible to pack just in case you're going to lose. You don't want to be too, um, you know... Don't want to hubristic. rush it. You don't want to be hubristic. You don't want to rush at the last minute. Uh, well, what happens now, of course, is that it's an exhausting process, the election campaign. The lead up to it, the five weeks of the campaign, everybody's really keyed up. The adrenaline is pumping. And then the election's over in one night. It's over in one night. And uh, the next day you wake up. And the posters that you'd put up five weeks before have got to be taken down. And if you've lost, they're valueless. And if you've won, you want to keep them for the next election. And you basically go into a bit of a mental uh, sloth for a couple of months where you're thinking, gosh, that was really exhausting. The adrenaline has flown out of my system. And now I just have to basically not make any mistakes and <laughs> just while my, my, my mental state recovers. It sounds like my wedding day. <laughs> indeed. Carry on, sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, indeed. I, I was married 25 years ago and I still remember the lead up to it as amongst the most stressful of my life, um, thinking, gosh, all my life's about to change now. Matched when my first child was born, which were twins, actually, and I thought, oh, my goodness, my life's going to change again now. Yep. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, and then you sort of recover from that and, you know, everyone has a, a week or two uh, off or they go on light duties and they potter around the office and they get a few things done and new ministers are very excited and vibrant and start having all their briefs and older ministers who've been there for a while get back to work. So the work keeps going, but you don't, um, you, you really need a period of mental and physical recovery in order to actually uh, function properly. And the parliament doesn't sit for a little while. So you don't want to go straight back into 100% on all cylinders or you'll pop at some point along the process. Well, hopefully what was said was going to be done in terms of what the Australian people voted for gets done in the next uh, few years in terms of the coalition and we'll see how the Labor Party reconfigures itself to build again for three years' time when we do this all again. Just one last one, Christopher, before I let you go. Um, you're not going to do a George Costanza and just pretend that you didn't retire or, or, or leave and just rock up and <laughs> continue on as if nothing happened and you're still part of it all. I'm very determined not to try and uh, reach out of the political grave and uh, and influence anybody. Um, my successor is calling me for advice every now and then and former cabinet colleagues, and I intend to stay in touch with them, but I certainly don't want to be one of those um, pillish former cabinet ministers that think it should all be done the way they used to do it. I've been in parliament for a quarter of a century, or had been in parliament for a quarter of a century, uh, 16 years of that on the front bench. I'm looking forward to new and exciting challenges. Christopher, we thank you for your time on Peacock Politics, giving an insight into how it all happened with the 2019 federal election and enjoy retirement from political life. Thanks, Adam. Great to talk to you. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Proud, sound production by Darcy Thompson, theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. 
To hear more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.